Well, we're starting the book of Revelation, and I'm going to first read the introduction that is in the study book, the study Bible that I have on this, and then get started and see how far we can go. So Revelation introduction. If ever, if it ever seems to you as though there's more evil in the world than good, then Revelation is for you. It's a book of hope. It's Central message is that God and good will win over evil, no matter how bad things look now. Revelation encourages you to live in a committed, holy life if you want to participate in God's victorious kingdom. It was written, it says, probably John the Apostle, who also wrote the Gospel of John. Some, however, suggest that a different John may have written it. When was it written? Several dates have been suggested. The most favored is A.D. 90 to 96, so 90 to 96 A.D. Near the end of the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. At that time that his persecution of the church began, this entire book, including the seven letters, went to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is present-day Turkey, to warn them against falling away from their faith in Christ. It also offered assurance of ultimate victory to those who remain on God's side. Revelation is an apocalyptic literature. The Greek word apocalypse means uncovering, unveiling, or revelation. Jewish Apocalyptic writing uses figurative language and symbolism to show that evil will be replaced by the goodness and peace of God's kingdom. What to look for? Look for a combination of warnings and encouragements, challenge and hope, watch for the descriptions of the future as God's kingdom ultimately conquers evil in the last days. Also notice the picture of the ruling Christ, this divine attributes and his heavenly glory. So that's the introduction of the from the study guide. So on this one, this book especially, we need the Holy Spirit because there is so much in here that um, is uncertain. We can only do the best that we can do to understand some of what's in here. Um, And many people do study and have different opinions on it. And um, the point being to get the concept or the message behind what it's written about. And that's what I will try to do from the times that I've studied this. um, And I've looked at a lot of different people's opinions on these things. And there's also a lot of references, cross-references, to the biblical books of the Old Testament that also give further clarification. So anything that I've learned up until over the last four years, I guess, I will mention. And even that, um, even the scholars who study this for 40 years still don't have all the answers. So um, some of these things we aren't going to know until it's actually hindsight. And then we're going to probably look at it and say, oh, that's what it meant, or that's how it was fulfilled. But a lot of us are really just guessing, but it's still important to read, and we definitely need God's guidance on this. So, dear God, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please give us wisdom, encouragement, let us know what you intended as we read this book of Revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. The Prologue, chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who testifies to everything that he saw, that is, the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, 
because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him to all the peoples on earth and and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So I will stop right here. And something else that I know from reading this before, that anything, I mean, it's so critical to read it word for word, and not add anything and not take away anything because there are curses for anyone who does that. So in commenting on this, this is only commentary and it's just what, like I said, what I've heard so far in understanding what I understand, but I'm going to make sure that's very clear that this is you know, just an opinion on the side, commentary on the side, but we're going to read every single word in here, the way it's written in Scripture. But there's a, when I was reading the sentence here that said, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Um, it's like the... I know when it says the um, seven spirits, it also, there's a reference and it has to do with translations. And I'm reading from the NIV version. So that's another thing. Like when you stumble on things that are not quite easy to understand, then it's really good to go to blueletterbible.org because you can go to the original, because we're in the um, New Testament the original Greek. If we were in the Old Testament, we'd go to the original Hebrew and you can see the words. So there's a lot of things that I've noticed, like I know, I think it's in the Hebrew that it's not like there's a his, her kind of a thing. Those are part of the translation when that's added into scripture on the Old Testament. On the Greek, I don't know if there are, um, are that, um, it's just, it's, it's pretty complicated when you look at it, and you can see why some things can be hard to understand just because of translation. And when people translated it, they had to put, you know, put it into another language, and sometimes there aren't words for something that was described in the original language. And the original probably would have been Hebrew, but what happened... I don't recall exactly what happened, except that I think a lot of the Hebrew was destroyed and what only remained was the Greek versions. But the good news is that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found accidentally not too long ago, when they found those, there was scripture that had been rolled up and they, I guess... um, certified or, you know, through science figured out that it was written at the time that this should have been, you know, this was anticipated to have been written like we were talking about in 90 or 96 AD. And they have pretty much confirmation that everything that's in the Bible, at least the Bible that I have today, is um, re- is relevant, hasn't hardly changed. And, you know, maybe it would be like, a word here or there because of a translation, but it is very much intact. 
And uh, that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls did. It gave a lot of proof. And that was just recently. I don't remember what year it was, um, but it wasn't too... You can look it up and find out when the Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls were found and find out more information about that. But basically what that did was just affirm what is written in the Bible. So... Um, anyway, it was. Um, it looks like in this it's saying, you know, grace and peace to you from him who, who is and who was and who is to come. And to me, that's saying that's God and from the seven spirits and sevenfold spirit is another translation. Um, so perhaps that's the Holy Spirit before his throne, or I'm not sure if that is the Holy Spirit or if it's another grouping of spirits. I'm not sure about that. And it says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So that's just something interesting to point out. And I don't really have, um, let's see, this is who or what are the seven spirits? And this may be a reference to the Holy Spirit. See, the NIV text note, the number of seven is often used to portray fullness or perfection. So that's what the study Bible says also. So getting back to the, the vision where it starts. Um, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John was um, exiled to an island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he was out on an island and he's writing this. Getting back to scripture. On the, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So right away in uh, a lot of this um, scripture that we find even in the Old Testament, uh, we do see that the symbolism is explained to us. So we don't have to guess because scripture tells us what it is. And often um, when you start studying the Bible, 
you'll, you'll find out that New Testament information will supplement Old Testament information and will give clarity or give more detail from things that you learn in the Old Testament. And I believe there was another prophet, and right now I, it's been a little bit since I've read all the prophets, so I can't remember which prophet it was, but I know there is another description of a prophet who saw someone that was described very similar to John, who had described it. Um, oh gosh, um, I want to say it was Ezekiel, but I'm not sure, Ezekiel or Zechariah? Um, but what's interesting also is that I'm going to jump ahead just in conversation about the um, further into Revelation. There's a scene with a scroll, and um, in the scene with the scroll, the angel gives John the scroll and tells him to eat it and that it's going to taste bitter as it goes down or it'll be sweet as you first taste it, but then very bitter when it goes down, when you swallow it. And that's the exact same spirit that, not the exact same experience that the earlier prophet had. But the interesting part is that the earlier prophet was told to go to his people to tell them this revelation and then John, I believe, was told to go to all, all other nations to share this with all other nations. So they both had the exact same experience. And then one was told, they were told to go to two different people to give this message. But it's really interesting that they both had the same or very similar experiences. Um, so I will have to look that up. But now that I'm in the middle of recording, I can't really do that. I don't know if maybe my study guide references that also, um, but I don't see that anywhere in here. Patmos, Son of Man. Um, anyway, I will have to. Anyway, there is there's one. I'll find that. But um, it's very interesting. So getting back to the symbolism. So we know that the seven stars that are in his hand are the angels. And here's something else with this that Paul writes about. He talks about how our, our battles are not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual world. And there are principalities and there's all these things that we don't see that are affecting what happened here on earth. And I, it's so kind of uh, refreshing or it makes sense. It makes everything in the world make much more sense when you can say that there's probably a spiritual influence that's affecting our world today based on some of the things that are just completely unexplainable how something like that could happen except for a spiritual influence. And so, you know, these are like the angels are connected with these seven churches. So the angels are the stars. So again, this is another symbol thing that we can look at. It's not every single time that God talks about a star does it mean an angel, but there are circum certain circumstances and symbolism where stars are angels. So right here, you see that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands, like the menorah, those are the churches. And there's seven of those lamps on the menorah. And that's a lampstand. Um, when you get into, I, I did a, I lit, watched a video that was very, very interesting on the um, construction and the design of the menorah. And there is so much detail and so much symbolism. And it just, when you start thinking about the menorah and the book of Revelation, there are a lot of ties into that, a lot of symbolism back to that. It's just amazing. I mean, that's just the way God works. There's, it's really fascinating when you get into the Word and you start seeing these or discovering or hearing about all of these different um, ties and symbolism and how it's 
interwoven is the way I always refer to it, is that the Old Testament is woven into the New Testament and it's, they're just so connected. But so Jesus has, um, he's telling John to write a letter to these churches, get a message to these churches, the angels of the seven churches. And so here is the first one. It's to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. And, and remember, all of these churches are what would be modern-day Turkey. So um, I think there's a lot of different um, takes on this, that um, these were all like in the past. But if you think about it, when, he, when Jesus goes through talking to each one of these churches, he's telling each one of these churches what they do well and what they need to change. And um, even if it was in the past and it was specifically to the church that he's, he mentions here, which it probably was, even so, it can still apply to us today because I can imagine that we have churches here in the world today that are experiencing the exact same thing throughout the world. And we can apply, we can probably listen to what Jesus is saying to each church and think about like, where are we? Where do we fit in? Which church are we in? And that's something that can apply to us today. And probably what Jesus wanted us to know that you know, these are all believers. That's the other thing about a church. A church is made up of believers, right? So here's another thing that I, I struggle with. The, I don't believe in the once saved, always saved because of revelation. Because when Jesus goes to each one of these churches, you would think like, okay, all these people are saved because they're believers and they're in a church. But listen to what Jesus has to say to any of them. He basically tells them if they don't repent, then, and he says, whatever it is for each church is something different. So, but he, repentance is a common theme. And I think the churches today don't emphasize repentance. The churches today are pretty much focused on love, which is true, but it's also primarily about our relationship with God. And if our relationship is broken because of sin and sin separates us from God, don't you think God wants that relationship restored? I mean, when you love someone, that's, that's all it is. It's about the relationship. It's the relationship between you and that person. So God wants the relationship. God doesn't want something separating us from him. Sin separates us from God. So the only way to change that is to repent, to change from that, to turn your mind away from sin and towards God, receiving the Holy Spirit to help that change happen. But think about it as we go through each one of these churches. So I'm going to go through, try and get through all the churches on this recording. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. And have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So who were the Nicolaitans? 
They were apparently followers of Nicholas of Antioch. He taught falsely that Christian freedom and the insignificance of the physical body permitted believers to engage in sexual immorality and other offenses without consequence. I think that's a huge thing that still fit, still is affecting us today. The sexual immorality is something that there's all this like sexual freedom in our world today, but isn't that the perfect way for the deception for the one who is against God, who seeks to kill and destroy? Isn't that the perfect way to say, to encourage, to lure people in that way? And if this is saying that he was a false teacher and he was teaching people that they could do this without consequence, you'll find out, I, if you want to look at um, a prior podcast, I put, what is so bad about sex? Because there's a whole podcast on that, so you can check that out. But it has to do with, with scripture throughout and what it says and why it is so critical. So the next church, Smyrna. To the angel in the church of Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is something really important because there are two deaths. Our first death is a physical death, and this, this expl- gets explained later on in Revelation. So when people die, there is a place that they go to, and whether or not they're conscious, we're not really sure. But there is a place. It's either um, because as soon as you die, you don't have the opportunity to change your destination. Once you die, that's it. There is no purgatory. That was something that church tradition brought in somehow, some way, but that does not exist. So do not count on that. It's whatever, whatever condition you are in when you die, that's where you're going to be. And there's no crossing over. Jesus told a parable about that. He told it about um, a man named Lazarus who was, um, he was, he was rich during his life on earth. And then he was in the place after death and he saw Abraham and someone else and he was suffering from thirst. He wanted thirst. It was, he just, he couldn't, he was, he said, just, you know, put a drop of water on my tongue. That's the way it was described in this parable that Jesus told. And um, basically what was said was that you can't cross over to them and they can't cross over to you. So these people are in two different places. Abraham's in one place and Lazarus is in, in another. And he had all the good things in life, but he never turned towards God. So he was in this place of agony and he wanted to be where Abraham was. And he could see Abraham, but he couldn't cross over there. He couldn't get to where Abraham was. And so he was suffering. And then he was saying, somebody go back and tell my relatives about this because I want them to know. And, and I think the comment back to him was basically, you know, it, it wouldn't really matter because, you know, even Jesus, you know, coming to earth, people didn't listen to him. The son of God present among mankind, telling people about God's kingdom and nobody listened to him. If no one's going to listen to the Son of God, then, you know, who's going to listen to other people that are saying this too? I mean, 
you know, some do, some did listen, obviously a lot did listen to Jesus, but there were still some that refused. So when people, just normal people talk about this, there's obviously going to be people who don't believe, who don't come to faith. um, And that's just, you know, their choice. But anyway, um, it's, it's important to know that um, uh, there is a second death. So the first time, uh, what happens to people is they go to this place. And again, we aren't sure if they are conscious and they, they experience, but they're not complete. They don't have the, the um, perfect bodies. They, um, I forgot what they're called, um, are immortal bodies. Those are not given to them until Jesus returns. That's when people will get their immortal bodies. But until then, if they passed away, they're in this this place waiting for Jesus to return so that the ones who, the way scripture describes them, they're asleep. So that's why I don't know if they're conscious or unconscious, but the people are asleep. And those who were in Christ, who were obedient, who had faith, who believed, those will be raised when Jesus returns, and first the dead, and then those who are living, and every and those people will be changed to have the immortal bodies. And so that's going to be a big change. And then um, there's this thousand-year period of the millennium that we'll read about later on in Revelation that will occur. And then after that thousand years is over will be the final judgment day. And at this point, that's the when the second death could be possible. So when Jesus returns, like Satan is still here. He's only he's going to be locked up for a thousand years. The first time I read Revelation, that kind of concerned me because I thought, why didn't he just go away forever? And but whatever, I, I don't know. Um, it's God's, we don't know everything, but he is bound for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, he is let loose again. And believe it or not, after all these people have been living with Jesus for a thousand years, still some turn and side with Satan. And there's a battle between Satan and his army and God, but it's a very short-lived, quick battle and completely defeated, and then Satan is thrown into the burning lake of sulfur, or the fire, a burning fiery lake of sulfur. But that's the second death. Now, all who don't believe in God are then, they also are resurrected at the end of that thousand years. So the people who don't believe in God are not resurrected at the same time the people that believed in, that had faith, they, there's two different resurrections. Like the ones who believed are resurrected first prior to this thousand years. Then the ones at the end of the thousand years, the ones who did not believe, do they come to life also. But that's the judgment day. And then they are cast into the lake of fire. But they are judged on their deeds by God. God does judge them. So... Um, and then after all of that final judgment day, so there's, there's a long time, but, but once you're, once you pass away from this earth, once you die or go to sleep from this earth, you don't have a chance to change. You don't, your destination. I mean, that's secured wherever you end up. So your time right now to make a decision about where you're going to end up is really critical. It's while you're living and no one of us, not one of us knows whether we're going to be gone tonight or in a second. Like that's God's choice, his appointed time. He has time frames. He knows, he knew when we were going to be born uh, because he made it happen. And he also knows like when our time is up. So each one of us, we don't know what our time frame is. And just because somebody has one time frame doesn't mean that's going to be our time frame. God determines that. And so it's a decision that you don't want to put off is what I'm getting at. Then, all right, the third church. 
to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet, and this was something that I thought was really interesting the first time I read, was that Satan's throne is in Pergamon. Pergamum is in Turkey. So just think about that. This is where his throne is. Kind of interesting. Anyway, getting back. Yet, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So again, whenever Jesus is emphasizing something, a lot of times it is repeated three times for emphasis. So now this is twice. So I don't know if it's three times, but it's twice that he has here where Satan has his throne. And then it says where Satan lives. This is in Pergamum. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This is, this is kind of interesting, too. There's, I'll read what the study Bible says. Well, first of all, the manna was what God fed the Israelites when, he, when they escaped from Egypt, when they were out in the wilderness for 40 years. He was feeding them manna from the sky. They did nothing, and this just fell from the sky. They had to go out in the morning and gather it, and then, except they couldn't gather it on the Sabbath day. And there's just so much that, you know, they work the six days and on the seventh day they rested. And there's just, you know, God repeats things over and over throughout history. They're literal events, but they're also symbolic. And it's like a, it's a preview of what is to come. And when we start reading that and seeing that in scripture, we will see a repetition and we can know a lot more about the future based on what's already passed. So, and then this, give the person a, okay, a white stone. I'll read about that. There's something on the sidebar about that. And the new name. And throughout scripture, you can also see that God gave new names. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel. Paul became Saul. Um, let's see. I think uh, Cephas uh, was Peter. So there's all these different people who have different names that Jesus na renames them. And I don't know if that's like symbolic. There's something in the study Bible that um, talks about it. So I'll read that. But I almost think like it's symbolic for a changed person. Once they receive the Spirit of God, they become a new creation, a new person. Therefore, they get a new name. So that's what my thought is. But anyway, I will read to you what it says here. Okay, a couple things. What is hidden manna? It was a common expectation among Jews that manna would be provided again when Messiah came, just as it was with Moses in the desert. This may mean that heavenly food will be accessible to believers who overcome. Well, this is really interesting. And I didn't, I don't know if I read that before, but I don't remember that. But this is really cool because in the end days, there's going to be another famine. So here is Jesus saying, I will give that person a white stone or wait. Um, I will give some of the hidden manna to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. 
So that is true. It could be to the believers that God will provide food like he did for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness from the book of Exodus uh, coming out of Egypt. And then what is the significance of a white stone? This is perhaps a reference to an ancient practice of giving a defendant on trial one of two stones, a white one if it found innocent or a black one if found guilty. Or this may allude to stones sometimes used as tickets for admission to festivals and royal feasts. Either way, the white stone symbolizes God's favor. That's really interesting, too, because I didn't know about the white stone uh, for innocence. Um, but that would, that would be like a purified, um, that they would become purified and then they would be innocent. Those who are in Christ are innocent in front of God on Judgment Day. So that's really interesting too. Okay, then to the angel in the church of Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and those whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into, guess what? Sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all her churches, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my, does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations that one will rule. So this is, um, let's see, I want to say about the secret. Why will they receive a secret new name? This is um, a few cents, the last church that we were talking about. The new name may indicate an important change in status for the believer as when Abraham became, Abram became Abraham, or it's possible that the new name written on the stone somehow pertains to God. Either way, this new name is a sign of a unique relationship with God. And then who was Jezebel? Originally, she was the queen of Israel who promoted the immoral cult of Baal. Of Baal. Her name is used here to categorize a false teacher, a so-called prophetess who misled the believers in Thyatira. So... Um, see. Um, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what were Satan's so-called deep secrets? Cults of the time, including Jezebel's, often claimed secret knowledge or wisdom that would be revealed only to those who initiated, those initiated into the cult. This verse mocks the claims that these secrets revealed truth. And then what is the morning star? A name for Christ, perhaps suggesting his rising authority and rule. 
More general implication, however, is one of hope, a light to those in darkness. So, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is another sentence where I struggled with, if this is true, then once saved, always saved can't be true. Because Jesus is saying, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. Well, if he would never blot out the name, he says, to the one who is victorious like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot the name out of that person from the book of life. This is somebody who's repented but will acknowledge that name before the Father and his angels. But if someone doesn't repent, does that mean their name gets blotted out? It seems that way to me. So why would, again, if you think about all these churches, he said, repent. He said, here's what you're doing good. Here's what you're not doing good. Repent, and then you will have this. So he's telling them, these are churches, these are believers. He's telling them to repent. That's the way I understand it. Going back to scripture. Uh, Let's see. I think we read, but uh, whoever's ears, let them hear what the spirit has to say to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I, this is that's something that I underlined, put stars on. There's something that's coming as a test to the entire world. That's something to pay attention to. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next church. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire 
so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. That one, I that line I underlined too. Those who I love and re, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. If we've ever had a time in our life where things have gone wrong, think about that line because those it, we're on a bad path, and sometimes God has to rebuke us, discipline us to get us to wake up, just like he said in another chapter, I mean, to the church in Sardis, wake up. And then to this church in uh, Laodicea, he's like, well, you know, those who I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Again, he's saying repent. I'm looking at all these churches, every one of these churches, except he didn't say repent to Philadelphia. I don't think he said that. Um, but so far, he said that to every one of the churches. So being our, here I am. Okay, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is another verse. So how many times has God been trying to get into your life, but you haven't paid attention? You haven't made him a priority. You said, oh, I'll do that later. Uh, you know, whatever. And you're just kind of blah. That's kind of like what he's talking about here at the Church of Laodicea. It's that person that's kind of, he says, it's not hot or cold. You're just kind of, eh, whatever. And yeah, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Well, God's saying right here, Jesus is saying right here that, hey, I'm right here. I'm knocking at your door. If you hear my voice and open up the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. Like the relationship will be restored. Don't leave him outside knocking. And not answer that door. To the one who's victorious, I will give them the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's the chapters 1 through 3. And there's probably a lot more um, that I'm probably going to... um, cover. I probably could have gone through these chapters a little bit slower. So um, the next podcast that I do, I'm probably going to backtrack and talk about some of these things that I didn't talk about when we were going through chapters one through three of Revelation. But I'll end this now.